Hello everyone, my name is Basil. I'm a part of the MACAD program at EAC. And today we are going to have a episode discussing generative design in BIM. Our guest for today is Mikael Steenbe, who is actually working right now as a computational designer at Henning Larsen. Mikael is a Danish architect working in Copenhagen, uh, and his speciality is computational design generally and generative design and sustainability and how he links both of these together. Right now, he works as a computational design expert at Henning Larsen. It's good to have him at this podcast, and thanks for being so generous and courteous with this time to uh, discuss this this topic. So let's go into the podcast right now. Can you can you tell me um, how did you get started with computational design? I think that was back at university. We had a, a few mandatory courses on Grasshopper, uh, where it was, yeah, they, they wanted to, to fit it in and it was a part of a, a math course, uh, which uh, I was very lucky that it was because uh, math is not my strong suit. So, so I could get by by just doing a Grasshopper in, in, instead. Um, but my, my first initial reaction to it was actually that it was super hard and I didn't really understand most of it. Uh, but by the second time that we had the, the course, it something started to, to happen uh, that I started to understand the, the logic and, and the way it works. And, and suddenly I could use it for pretty much everything. And I could suddenly see that I could start to create uh, architecture in the way that's, that I had it in my mind, uh, which I couldn't express before because I'm also very terrible at uh, drawing. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's, I think that's a common thing with computational designers, right? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's like the computer is replacing, is giving us extra abilities that maybe we didn't have before. Exactly. Yeah. So, so then, so, so that's how it started at university, but then how, did, did you carry on that to the professional life? Like, did you just directly start uh, using computational practices in your, uh, in your architectural career? Yeah, so uh, so already in the university, I, I took it a, a bit further and started to experiment with all the different uh, types there is in computational design. So generative design, uh, structural design, uh, acoustics, all these different parameters. Because I I found it uh, very intuitive uh, to uh, to start to implement these into the designs. Um, so once I, I started in. Uh, my career, I ended up at uh, the sustainability team at Henny Larsen, where most of the stuff we were running was through Grasshopper. So it was uh, pretty much a default script that was already set up, and we were just doing analysis. Uh, but what really caught on very early was it was uh, super fun to be able to extend those scripts and build upon them and make them more and more complicated because you could start to uh, to get more and more information out of it um, yeah so i think that's kind of how it's it started so so we actually both me and my my colleague we ended up turning this sustainability department into a more of a computational department but with a focus on uh, on sustainability and microclimate and, and these things oh so so that's 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 interesting that's that's also a topic that uh, i was wondering uh, like how how do you feel like the, that aspect of sustainability and environmental design work with computational design like uh, do do they always like work hand in hand or so, do do they sometimes conflict maybe mm, i think it make good sense uh, just 
it, it really depends on, on how you set it up. And I mean, there's many aspects of computational design, but where I can really see that there is a great beneficial is it doesn't really matter whether it's microclimate or whatever we're doing, but when we are starting to do some cross disciplines, so we start to have some of these engineering disciplines and connect them to our architectural models. That's where the magic is, is happening. And whether that is a live feedback or whether it's something that will run for for several days doesn't really matter per se. It, it still gives quite a lot of quality to the architectural model. Because you can suddenly actually see uh, what is your design doing uh, and how can you make it better. Okay, that's really nice. So, um, so w- w- you mentioned the generative design, yeah. So, uh, for the people who don't know what generative design is, how would you like put a generative design in a sentence? And what do you feel was like the most effective use of generative design you've done in a project? Sure. I mean, generative design is, is such a broad term, so uh, quite a lot of people are using it, and, and not all of them are talking about the, the same thing. So, so I think it's, a, it's very good to, to, to talk a little bit about that. Uh, when I'm talking about generative design, uh, I'm talking about uh, mostly parametric models that is set up where we uh, make the computer uh, go through different solvers. That could be evolutionary solvers, something like that which basically it will end up figuring out uh, what is what is the best possible combination of these parameters that we've put in. Uh, so in that sense, we basically just make the computer test a, a whole bunch of, of different iterations and then pick out the, the best one. Um, and when it comes to, to the best use, I mean, there's so many and uh, it's, it's, it's so varied about how you can use this. Uh, I can say that uh, some of, I mean, where it makes the absolutely most sense is something like, for example, facades. If you want to uh, make sure facade panels is uh, distributed right, you can set it up so it can both run a, a daylight analysis inside. It can be a, can be ACE, so annual uh, sunlight uh, simulation inside. You can do the radiation on the facades and so on. All these parameters, and then you'll just find like one true. Uh, best density of of the parameters you've set up. Um, So I think that is kind of the ultimate goal. But where we're seeing it at the moment is it's at least how we're using it. We're using it in more of a explore what is out there kind of tool. Uh, So instead of going a single goal, this is the the defined end, then we're actually putting up multiple goals where it will maybe generate 5,000 different results. And then we have some methods where we can uh, iterate through them afterwards. So we can sit together with clients, uh, we can sit together with architects, depending on, on who it is, and just go through different results. So when they're asking, what happens if you do this and that, then it's just a matter of uh, scrolling a bit and, and sorting through all the data, and then you will have the results immediately. So yeah, generative design is actually, it's, it's like one of the steps you take when you're trying to like allow the computer to assist you in getting different designs and uh, uh, variables. But uh, I think like the more, more the new approaches like machine learning and artificial intelligence and all of these things. And uh, I think when we discussed, you told me you, you like, like you guys, you're having some sort of approach to machine learning maybe. So could you like tell us a bit about your experience with that? Yeah, so so what we're trying to do, and, and in general, I'll just go a bit off topic first and then I'll uh, circle back in. Um, so in in these years, in, instead of 
of having us doing all these analysis as we've been doing for, for quite a few years, um, where it takes quite a lot of time to run on their computers. Uh, we're trying to, to optimize a lot of the code and the way we're working. So instead of us having to do the analysis, it will actually be in the hands of the architects. So what we're trying to do is create this uh, thing called uh, the augmented architect. So basically that when they sit and, and sketch, they'll just get live results of sunlight hours, of uh, square meters, all these things that is necessary for them to, to do their work, but they don't necessarily need someone else to come over and, and, and show them the results. Now they can just do them by themselves, basically. Um, and... Of course, we're running into problems when we're starting to look at, uh, at some of the more heavy analysis, for example, wind analysis or some of the others. And that's where machine learning is a really powerful tool. So we are seeing more and more examples of it being used in different platforms, uh, especially online, where you can do a, a wind simulations in, in a matter of seconds. And of course, they're not super precise. They may be only 80% uh, precise. But it's good enough just to to get some feedback and and know for the architects whether they are heading the right or the wrong direction. Um, so that's basically also what we're doing. We are utilizing machine learning to to look into that, uh, so we can make sure that the architects can can get uh, pretty fast life results. So are there like future um, uh, things that you want to do with machine learning, maybe? Like you've not explored yet, maybe, or you want to explore with machine learning and artificial intelligence? Oh, so many things, so many things. Um, yeah, what, what can I mention? Um, I mean, I, I think there's, there's quite a lot of things we can put in there. So one thing is analysis, uh, but another thing is also just to look at all the data that we already have. So what I would really like to also see in the future is, is more machine learning models of how people are moving around in urban spaces, how people are moving around in buildings. Uh, in general, this post-occupancy data, how can we implement that in the early phases? Can we make the machine learning models so that they can automatically give feedback on, on a building design and say, hey, you know, there is a problem here. You don't have enough gathering spots for this type of buildings, that kind of things. Uh, so it becomes much more of an intuition uh, than it is uh, just pure data, uh, which is pretty hard to, to cycle through at the moment. I feel like y y your approach to maybe computational design and machine learning is just to like make make things simpler for the architect, make things simpler for for people. Yeah, I, I saw that in your I think uh, your uh, garage script or your uh, parking script. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to make uh, things simpler for architects. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to make the life easier for for everybody, right? We don't want to do all the boring tasks. True. So, do you feel like uh, like the machine learning and and AI would actually start maybe replacing certain jobs or certain architects or certain computational designers because you know it's it's already doing most of the heavy lifting. Mm, it will replace some of the some of the tasks, but I don't think it will replace any jobs per per se. Uh, what we're seeing is that there is. More and more demand for what is need to be delivered and what is need to be be done in in buildings, and they're becoming more and more complicated. Um, so we need 
someone to take some of these boring tasks uh, off our hands. Uh, and it doesn't need to be machine learning. It can also just be computational design to automate some of these uh, tasks. So we can focus on the important aspects of it. Uh, and I don't really see any jobs being being lost there. Uh, quite on the yeah, on the other side, I, I think we'll see that uh, computational designers uh, will be more and more sought after uh, because somebody still needs to set up uh, a, a automated process for for these boring uh, things. That's that's good news for computational designers. I think that, I think they'll have you in that. <laughs> uh, so yep. uh, yeah, so so <laughs> like another question is for machine learning to work, you need big data, yeah. And uh, you need a lot. You need to collect a lot, of, a lot of data. And then what we are seeing, like maybe with some countries, I'm talking maybe from an urban design as, aspect uh, a bit. Uh, they are collecting too many, uh, like a lot of data on their the inhabitants of the country, what they're doing, who they're talking to. We can see it from uh, from certain social media applications gathering too much data about you. At some point, might get used in an, some unethical manner, right? I think it already is. <laughs> yep. Huge issue, uh, general privacy and, and how it's been used is, is, is super important. Um, and I think it's very easy to misuse a lot of the open data that is already out there. But, uh, but how to, to solve that and, uh, yeah, and, and figure out what should be public available and, and what shouldn't is always a, a fine line because we can do so much good with all that data. But on the opposite, you can also do so much evil if you had that mindset, right? Um, yeah. So uh, I, I don't really have any good answer to to that, to be honest. So as you know, like the, the central topic of this module is actually BIM. That's what we're discussing. So uh, how do you feel like these technologies that we talked about, uh, including sustainability, generative design, and machine learning, and AI, how do you feel these work with BIM? As Seeing as BIM is like the main technology for the construction industry. I think uh, BIM is is headed in the wrong direction or is looked at in the wrong way for a lot of people at the moment. Uh, BIM should be used as a, a design model where a lot of information is stored. It should never be used to do design or anything else uh, in, in that matter. Um, it's simply not made for that. Um, and I think BIM is, is great in the extent of what it's supposed to be. It's super good at uh, storing data and being able to, to talk together with, with quite a lot of uh, different uh, programs, which is uh, very nice. But that's also uh, about the only thing I can say, or nice thing I can say about that. Um, because in, in terms of... Uh, how to use it as a as a designer and an architect and and so many other things. It's uh, it's it's very heavy and it's it's going in in the wrong direction in in a lot of these programs of what I can see. It's becoming more and more uh, stuff we need to include, even though it's not really relevant. Um, but yeah, but but I think it's uh, it will be something we're going to see a lot more of. Um, but in terms of, of machine learning, it's great because there we have quite a lot of data and it's more or less structured, at least if uh, it's it's a good BIM model. But do you not feel like it make, maybe makes things easier when, when it comes to, to transferring a project from just like a conceptual phase to reality? Like instead of just doing everything manually and maybe when it comes to f- for facade design, for example, where you have to like fabricate each part of the facade, I think... 
maybe do you not think maybe BIM makes it easier as as having so much information in such complex projects could be an asset? It's uh, yeah, both both yes and no. In in terms of the fabrication, I actually think that's one of the things where BIM is is lacking quite a lot. Uh, I would really like to see. Uh, architects in our software being a lot closer to the fabrication processes, especially now that we're seeing a uprising of uh, wooden uh, houses, uh, at least in, in Northern Europe and in the US, uh, would, would make so much more sense for us to do models in a way that can go directly into fabrication. Um, it wouldn't take that much more. And their BIM is, is not very good. BIM is good at storing data, but not geometric data per, per se. How it will affect, for example, fabrication of facades or actually putting the facades together because of having that much data for such a complex project is maybe as a good asset. Yeah, and I mean, for, for the rest of it, I mean, there is what BIM is necessary. It is good to host data and to take data in from uh, from different disciplines. And that is what it should be used for. Uh, so no, that's that's good. I mean, we, we couldn't do it without it on, on complex buildings. Um, yeah, but it's a uh, BIM, BIM should be used for that and not for much else. Um, Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so, so here, like, another question is, uh, as you mentioned, like, some some jobs will be um, made easier through these technologies, and some will be, um, well, not replaced. But then you said they will be, uh, they will automate some tasks that will, and make our lives easier. So, uh, how do you feel this could affect the economics of the AEC industry? You know the architectural engineering and construction industry? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, I think we'll see uh, quite a shift and I think we'll see um, a change in in how companies are, are structured. Uh, I think we'll have a problem with with smaller studios focusing on, on standard um, housing and, and so on because that will be pretty much parametric models uh, in the future, I think. I mean, we can see it already with uh, SiteSolve and uh, Archistar and some of these other uh, generative design software online. And they're becoming better and better. And when we're looking at just standard buildings, I think there some jobs will, will be lost, uh, at least in terms of the architects. So I think that will change the, the industry there. Uh, but hopefully some of these things can also bring the industry a bit closer to it together. Because right now it's very much silo thinking uh, for each of the different disciplines. But in these kind of softwares, we can actually start to implement everything. So for example, we can have the developers' thoughts in the parametric model, but we can also have the engineering thoughts. Uh, all these things can actually be, be put into together. Uh, so I think we'll see more and more firms where it will be almost one company that can do quite a lot of it. As we're seeing, I think it's called Qatar in uh, in the US that is doing that kind of stuff. Um, or Katana, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, so I think we'll see some of the smaller businesses uh, growing out and then see uh, some of the larger ones being been larger and larger, basically, because then they'll take over and do all these uh, complex buildings that cannot be solved by parametric design, uh, easily at least. Yeah, I, I think this is a topic that um, that's quite interesting. Like, do you feel like there is some sort of like 
um, a closed system within the AEC industry where like large firms, they have the capacity to develop their own tools, their own systems, and then they actually just, they don't share them with other, with others or they don't try to improve the industry as a whole. I mean, I noticed you guys are trying to do the, the opposite maybe at, uh, at Henning and Larson. I mean, both yes and no. Uh, I think there's... I mean, the construction industry is not really known for its openness. But then again, in the whole grasshopper community, uh, even though that's not only the building construction, we do see quite a lot of open source. And we are seeing it more and more in in different places. Uh, There's also the open source community, where basically they are developing uh, open BIM and a lot of these other softwares. Um, So even though a lot of the software we're using right now is not open source. I think, or I hope, it's probably more hope uh, that we'll be be going in in that direction. But but in terms of how the companies are doing it, I think a lot of them uh, is slowly getting used to the thoughts of doing open source. Um, And I mean, that's even the the same at where I'm working at. Uh, We're developing quite a lot of tools um, and we're still figuring out how to, how is it best to do it open source? Uh, because we want to share, we want to give back. But in the same time, it also quite, takes quite a lot of resources to make sure that it can be open source and it's available for everybody and has the right documentation. Um, so it's it's a bit tricky on, on how to do that. And I think most companies, unless they're very, very big, don't really know how to set that up. Um, and I mean, we're even struggling with, with some of it. Um, but I think the, the will is there for, for quite a lot of them. Um, and for most of these things that is developed is not necessarily something groundbreaking where they will lose money if uh, someone somebody else is uh, using it. So another aspect is, um, as computational design is becoming more prevalent, uh, do you believe learning computational design becomes like an essential skill for, for architects, I mean, maybe and maybe other engineers? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I, I had a large di- discussion about this the other day. Um, both years and no, I, I think we'll see more and more being computational designers, or at least have the skills some of the skills of computational design in various degrees. And I think it's it's super important, but there's still room for, for people who go other way. I mean, we cannot all be specialists in, in everything. Um, but I think in, in a few years, we'll start to see it a little bit like, uh, okay, do you know uh, Revit? Have you worked in that? Then it will be the same as, okay, then you have you worked in Grasshopper basically. Uh, so the schools will start to prioritize it so people know the way of thinking, maybe know a little bit in the tool. And then somebody will go uh, full on that way and will be a, a super advanced computational designers. And others will just know how to uh, push a few buttons in there. And I think that's uh, completely fine. So, so do you feel like coding is the next skill that, that needs to be developed? Yeah, after, after Grasshopper, I think uh, coding will take people so much further. I don't think it's a skill that all architects need to uh, to uh, to have experience with, not at all. But if you want to go the career path as a computational designer, I really think that's the right approach to, to go. But I mean, I didn't learn how to code until after I, I came out into our company. Um, so there's more than enough time for people to figure it out. 
Okay, so uh, the last question, uh, and I can let you leave. All of these developments that we're talking about is in the first uh, in the in the first world or developed countries. So um, the developing countries are pretty much very far behind, and like this transformative technologies that we're discussing. So how do you feel this would would have an impact on these countries that are still in the developing stage? And what advice would you give the people, a lot of like experts living over there, so that they could try to catch up? Maybe mm, I think you have to be a bit more specific in in which areas because uh, Africa, maybe yeah, Africa, for example. Okay, in 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 Africa, yeah. To be honest, I don't know too much about how it is to be an architecture firm down there. Um, but I know we are using a parametric uh, design and that kind of stuff on, on a few of the development projects. I think by now the internet is is, is still pretty easy to, to access, uh, even in Africa, a lot of places. Uh, and if you are going to be an architect and want to learn this kind of stuff, so you're not just working in your local area uh, where you might not need it for the next uh, many years, then you probably have access to internet. And I mean, that is where most of us are, are learning uh, all the stuff we, we can do today. It's, it's actually making it better for, for everyone that it's online, most of it, because it's more accessible for, for everyone. Perfect. So uh, thank you for the uh, interesting uh, conversation. Hopefully, uh, I think people will, get, will benefit a lot from uh, your, your uh, ideas and thoughts and the things that we discussed in this conversation. And yeah, thank you.